All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. We're going to do something different today that is post in its entirety an episode I did with Dan Vitale in 2014. Now, the reason we're doing this is, is Dan passed away last week, and I don't know if anybody who listens to this, you know, outside of maybe hearing the episode that I did with him, really puts him in, into context. And I left the intro intact uh, of the original episode. Uh, it was from March 2014. I recorded it in New York City. It was important for me to track Dan down and talk to him uh, for a few reasons. Uh, and, and some of them I discuss with him and, and some of them I, I discuss leading up to the episode. But, but in retrospect given that so many people in my community are, are passing away, are dying, you start to think in a way like, you know, man, it's death is all over. It's always all over. Everybody dies, man. And you never know when it's going to happen. And there are certain ages where in your mind you think it's, well, that was, you know, he had a good life or, you know, or that's tragic or that was way too young. And, and people say that about 80-year-olds now. Like, that was, he was young for, for these times. I'm like, was he, though? But Dan was in his 60s, I imagine. I don't know his exact, his exact, uh, how old he was. I do know he had heart disease. And I do know that, uh, you know, his, his partner came home after being out of town and found him in the house. But the reason that I sought him out to begin with is that he was a very unique performer, a very unique comic, a very unique guy. You know, he was a guy that was poised to have everything, uh, you know, a career in show business and blew it because of his own demons and how hard he was on himself and how, uh, how important, you know, stand-up was. It was ultimately, I think it was too important for him, you know, to really carry on with it in any consistent way. And you just don't meet too many performers like that. This guy, Dan, had this like explosive sensitivity about him. And he was hyper, you know, kind of present and always trying to work things out for himself. Mentally, intellectually, doing the big work and whatnot. And I just remember watching him. When I watched him on stage, he wasn't struggling with performing he was struggling with himself and that was you know that in and of itself can be a funny disposition but it was genuine and he was one of these performers where you know every set meant something that if he was going to go up there for 10 minutes it had to it had to land it had to be deep it had to resonate it had to to work for him and the audience in a deeper way than, than just getting laughs. The premium was on the depth of the humor and of what was being said. He had a true artist spirit about the thing. You know, he did get sober years ago, and we've stayed in touch. <clears throat> but it's one of these situations where, you know, a lot of times I have these conversations with people, and then they pass away, and then I repost them. And my connection with them may have been just as deep as that conversation. And then there are people that, for whatever reason, even if it's not much more than that conversation, have had a deep impact on my life in my process of, of sort of putting myself together from scratch, from the ill-defined sort of uh, fragmented self that I was sent off into the world with. 
And Dan was just one of those guys, you know. We we did keep in touch. So I just I texted him like two two and a half weeks ago when I was in New York, and he didn't get back to me. But then he left a voicemail. He didn't rec- he had changed phones, and we seemed to like just text on and off every few months. And always, you know, it was always funny. He was one of the first guys I went to when I, I actually you know wrote a joke or 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 was trying to sort of work out a way to approach Lynn's death on stage. He was very supportive during uh my grief time you know he texted checked in occasionally but i'm i remember he was the guy i'm like who who can i tell this to who is who can handle this you know and who will i not feel weird and ashamed about telling me this joke that i came up with like a few weeks after lynn passed away which is now you know in my performance it's in my uh act or in my show right now and i reference dan as i don't say his name on stage but i've been saying that i called this guy who i i knew was the dark buddha who was the only guy i could tell at this moment and that was dan and you know he laughed he was like oh my god what are you gonna do with that (laughs) and uh well i figured out a way dan but oddly we would text occasionally about people passing away you know we and we would he would he just send me a text about he was making fun of the Sam Elliott thing. And uh, and recently, you know, we were talking about Dom Irera, and I hooked him up with Dom, and, you know, they hadn't talked to each other in 20 years, and it was nice. He said, a uh, text says, I just had a long talk with Dom, a lot of laughs. Still sounds like he's got the spirit. Thanks for prodding me and his phone number. Love you, man. Then he texted me about William Hurt dying, and I said, uh, yeah, man, you can only get away with life so long would text me when people died you know so i didn't get a text about him <laughs> but he just had a big impact on me and I'll, I'll you'll i'll put him into context in the show uh in the intro that you'll hear soon and i'm here in tulsa still and i and i went to the dylan uh center yesterday and it's so funny that we were you know he had left me this message about the in memoriam thing that lynn was in on the oscars and he he texted me. Here's the he he left a, a rambling message. I don't I don't I don't have it anymore. But he said, uh, "Here's the Dylan lyric I was trying to quote. Quote: Time is a jet plane. It moves too fast. Oh, but what a shame if all we shared can't last." Unquote. And he said, uh, "Dan says, uh, you know, Mark, life has taught me you can learn a lot from Dylan, but you can also probably learn a lot from Carrot Top." He's he was a funny guy, a thoughtful guy. You know, this episode was from March 2014, but if you've been listening to the show for a while, you hear a lot of, uh, you hear a lot of the, the familiar stuff that I always talk about. You know, the themes of my show, you know, about, about life and comedy and, and what I think stand up comedy is or what the, you know, what I, I think is important in stand up comedy. And, you know, Dan and I talk about all that stuff. We talk about our, our, our love for Jackie Vernon, you know, comics that made a, a sort of an impact on us when we were younger. And it's a very good sort of time capsule. It's a real, it's a good episode sort of exemplifying, you know, what we were trying to do with this show with WTF and, and what I was able to get out of it personally for myself by connecting with people, especially people that, you know, I, I, I hadn't talked to or seen or heard from in a while. But, but as, as a guy, you know, Dan Vitale wrote a couple of the best jokes I ever heard in my life because they were so real and so resonant and so fucking deep. It was satisfying. He was a real fucking artist, this guy. And and he really just couldn't... He just fought the fight 
and it was hard for him to get up there. But I just wanted to to give him this this tribute and also to, you know, post this episode again, you know, on a on a on a regular show day. But I love the guy, you know, and again, it's weird. I can't explain it. It's not like we spent a lot of time together, but there was a, it was a time when I was very impressionable and it was very important. Uh, comedy was very important to me and what and how to do it. And I just always, uh, you know, the guy just was somehow part of my heart. You know, it's like the Saget. You know, I, I, I didn't know that guy that well, but he was somehow connected to part of my heart. And in a dark way, you know, it was like this thing I said on the last episode. I'm in Tulsa, you know, and Kennison is buried here. And, you know, and he and that guy really kind of profoundly uh, hurt me when I was younger. Yeah, you because know, I'm a sensitive guy. <laughs> that's, you know, that's why we do comedy. And, you know, he, he kind of terrorized me and really kind of fucked me up. And it was all very specific. And I wanted to have the last word. I'd spoken kind of glibly about, you know, going to his grave and peeing on it because I owed him that. And I thought about that for years. But, you know, I went out there and I got to the grave and, you know, and I knew I wasn't going to do it. But I didn't know that I would find forgiveness in my heart for that guy and actually have a few laughs and think about, you know, some of the amazing experiences I had at that time in my life, given they were drug-fueled insanity and that things got out of control but i got a lot of a lot of good laughs and a lot of good stories and and whatever trauma i had has been has dissipated and been resolved and i was able to you know in 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 you know find forgiveness for a, a fairly brutal dude but that's what happens you know if you live long enough and you put death into perspective and you know you really put your own um selfish sort of um, emotions into perspective. But that's just a reflection on, on death and the death around me and as I get older. But uh, this guy, Dan Vitale, was you know, truly a force of nature, a real hot frequency. And I, um, you know, I reached out to his partner, who, who I hadn't seen in years and I really haven't talked to, um, just to, to express my condolences and say, uh, you know, let me know if there's anything I can do to help, which is, you know, such a, it's not an empty gesture, because I would if I could, and if there was something, you know, someone needed, I would do it, but it, it's just something you say. And and she said something, she said, I'm okay, just can't get used to the world without Dan Vitale. Uh, and that's, you know, that's an intimate relationship, but that's that's sort of what happens, the absence Whatever your relationship with somebody who has passed away, somebody that was part of you somehow, you know, you're always going to, you know, the relationship becomes with an absence and the weight of that. Rest in peace, Dan Vitale. I loved you. Here's my conversation with Dan Vitale from March 2014, including the introduction. Dan Vitale. Let me tell you about Dan Vitale. Dan Vitale was a force to be reckoned with. When I got to New York in the late 80s, 1989, the original improv was one of the only places that, you know, I could work. The original improv, what was left of it up there on 44th Street was, you know, Bud Friedman had left and built his empire. And the original improv where everything started was 
under the control of Bud's ex-wife, Silver Friedman, who ran the place and and managed it to micromanaged it down to your act, to who you were, to who she let on, and to what she, you know, she had things to say about you. But it was sort of a beat up place and it kind of had the vibe that it was on its last legs, but it was the original improv. So it had that, the, the sort of history to it. And, and it had, you know, all these, you know, weird old pictures and, you know, it was the place. It was the original club. It was the original brick wall. The original improv on 44th Street was a small room. The chairs were beat up. Uh, the, the sign on the wall, on the hanging on the brick wall that said the improvisation was missing a letter. Uh, all the chairs were, you know, some of them were built into the wall. It might have probably seat less than 200 people in there. It was a tight little room with a front bar. And it just looked like it was beat up. All It wore all the history right on the chairs, right on the walls. Every We felt it all. It wasn't haunted. It was just a little bit beat up. And it felt like it was almost over. But being able to work there, you kind of felt like, well, at least I'm catching the tail end of this. At least I've stood in front of the original brick wall, the first one, where it all started, you know, where all the people in New York, you know, started to come, uh, you know, uh, back in the, in, in the early 70s or late 60s. It was, it, you felt it all. But uh, when I got there, there was this dude, Dan Vitale. I never heard of him. I didn't know who he was. But he was one of these guys that a sort of mythological tale surrounded him you know at the time he was very heavy you know he'd get up on stage and he was one of the first guys i'd ever seen get up on stage and literally look at an audience and go you know what yeah i don't know if we're, we're gonna get along i don't know if we're gonna hit it off and he would just wrestle with himself on stage i'd never seen anything like it there was you know this amazing sort of bombastic sort of wit and confidence mixed with this utter, complete, angry insecurity. It was, it was fascinating to me that he could let himself be that way on stage and that he was that way off stage too. He just struggled with himself, but he had brilliant jokes. I've quoted some of the jokes on this show, uh, you know, to other people and talking to Dom Irrera, but I just used to love watching this guy and hang around this guy because I'd never seen someone so actively struggling with himself, you know, with his past, you know, with uh, substances, with everything. But the, the story was that, you know, he was the next big guy. He was that guy. You know, he was really the first story that it was the first time I ever heard that story. We we're like, yeah, man, he was poised to be the guy at, you know, for Lorne Michaels. Lorne Michaels took a shine to him and he got to he got the shot and he just blew it because he couldn't control his 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 personality or his substances or anything. He just blew it and then he fell hard. And this is what's left of him. And I loved what was left of him because it was so brutally raw and human and, and honest yeah, in a way that, that you know, being humbled gives you. You can fight being humbled, but if you are humbled, you, know, you can't hide it. You can fight it, but you can't hide it. It's, a, it's tough to find grace in that. I guess grace is a theme. But I was sort of obsessed with Vitaly, and then there was that period there. I remember there was this one time... <laughs> You know, Bill Hicks lived in New York for about a day, maybe less than a year. He just decided to move here. He was doing sets at the improv. No one, no one really understood Hicks. You know, he just blew that room apart. You know, and Vitaly and Hicks were buddies. I mean, they became friends. And, you know, and, and then we used to sit and watch. Like, I remember one time I sat and watched Brian Regan with Bill Hicks and Vitaly was there. And I just remember this one time where me and Bill Hicks and Dan Vitaly, 
you know, it was, you know, it was New Year's Eve and we were at the improv. We had nothing to do, no parties, no nothing. And we were like three blocks away from where the ball drops. And I'd never seen it. I never wanted to go over there. I never wanted to, <laughs> to fucking deal with the massive crowds and all the bullshit. But Hicks had never seen it. So me and Vitalia stand there and Hicks is like, let's go, man. Let's go see it. And I'm like, dude, we're never, we're not even going to get close to it. I mean, we were on 44th and like between 8th and 9th and it's happening at 42nd and, you know, Times Square. And there were people already backed up to almost to where we were. But Hicks is like, man, I got to see it. I got to see it. And we went out. I just remember the three of us, you know, these fucking rogue comedians, you know, friendless and without definition, life-wise, other than our gypsy existence. We're trying to plow through the, the, the essence of mainstream culture, you know, to get to watch this spectacle. And we got about a block and we didn't know what to do. We couldn't move. It was, it was horrible. And Hicks is just sort of like, ah, fuck this. Let's go back to the improv and do the countdown. So we wild, you know, wandered back and just, you know, sat there and waited for New Year's to happen. The three of us, in my memory, were just alone in the bar at the improv, you know, waiting for New Year's to happen. It's just a, it's a beautiful New York sort of, you know, sad but kind of pretty moment, you know. But Vitaly, man, I just, he's always had, I've always had a big place in my heart for him. And I'm very thrilled that, you know, I was able to talk to him. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. This conversation with Dan Vitale took place at the London Hotel. I don't think I had sat down and talked to Dan in over 20 years. Over 20 years. I think I ran into him once in that time. But he looks good. He's a, you know, specifically New York character. And, uh, and you know, it had a profound effect on my life. And I was thrilled to talk to him. So... So this is me and Dan Vitale. No, I tell you the truth. I, I was uh, thinking when I was walking through, like, the last time I stayed in any kind of decent hotels, it's like I'm in my 50s. So it's really like <laughs> my late 20s. Yeah. Maybe I caught a couple in my early 30s. I was getting, like, the last of, like, the good television work that yeah. was coming my way. Yeah. And sad to say... My only reference is that I would come in looking kind of like crazed. Yeah. And, you know, because it's like what I would do is uh, I knew that I was like, say, I was a featured player on SNL. So I knew I was getting like like 1800 a week. Yeah. So I'd go up to Broadway Video and I'd wait for like Lauren's secretary. And I would come up with some story about yeah. uh, you know a sick relative and uh, Con Ed's closing me off. And so I'd get an advance yeah. of like a couple of thousand. Yeah. And I'd go like, well, I can't really be around like people I know because I knew it was to come, you know. So I would go check in. I'd go, okay, let me just get a nice hotel room. I'll do my ugly business, whatever that's going to be. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you'd always walk in. They always had like that. Uh, I'm sure they have one here. You know, like that security yeah. place where you could go like, I'd like to leave some valuables. So what, no matter how much I got, like say I got five grand, I would take like two grand in the pocket and yeah. I'd put three grand in the, in the box downstairs. Like, yeah. no, that Nobody touches that. And then I'd, you know, call up some, you know, like, you know, degenerate Coke dealer or pick up some denizen of the street. And then, like, within, like, you know, 20 hours, I'd be down there, like, sweating with, like, some concierge trying to talk me out of going to the... So it's like I never really got that experience of sitting there and, <laughs> and for like, like, having some coffee. Yeah, and having, like, the nice room service. Yeah. yeah. So I moved to New York. I guess it was 89. I was living on the Lower East Side. And Silver passed me. 
at the original huh. improv. Yes, on original. F- yeah, Forty Fourth Street, which at that point in '89 was it was it was like a, a decaying. It was it was it was it had seen its day. Well, I'll tell you. Okay, go ahead. Right. You, so okay, yeah. so I come in and uh, you know, like I think Kevin Brendan was working the door. I don't think Attell was working the door. Maybe no, Attell was working. I, the door. I don't know if he was was when I got here. I think he would done that thing. Maybe Stu Caymans. I think he was just getting off the door. Right. Yeah. And uh, and you were around, and Brett Butler was living here at that time, and you were this guy that, you, to me, you know, I didn't know who you were. But at that time, it's like, that's Dan Vitale, and you were like, you know, you were up there sweating, and you were, you were <laughs> you're working some shit through, and all I know is that they were like, oh, yeah, he was on SNL, and then, uh, and then it just all went bad. He, he, wow. He, Okay. You know, yeah, like, it's true, yeah, but, <laughs> which is true, by the way. But I mean, yeah, but go like, ahead. you know, I walk in and you're doing this great comedy. I, I still quote fucking jokes of yours I, and I give I you credit for the, the, the sort of when you hit bottom, you'd be surprised at how much give that floor <laughs> has. Like it, it had a profound effect on me. But I don't think I ever really got the backstory. There was that time, 89 to 91, 89 to 91, 92, I was here. Hicks was here for about six right. months. Yeah. And but I met you before that. And you never you, you were volatile. Like yeah. you, you were you were in and out of sobriety, but you just never knew when you were going to lose your shit. And then, like you know, you get to the improvs, like, oh yeah, fucking Dan last night. He, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But what what yeah. what? Like was I it? went from like, in other words, it was no longer just about the comedy at that point. I'd become like sort of almost like a spectacle of well, some. Well, I didn't yeah. see it necessarily, but you no. you you heard about it. Yeah. Like it's like when Dan got there, you're like, all right, we'll see what happens. Right, I could give you the chronology, right? If you need that, yeah. Okay, so. Uh, you know what, man, I, I wanted to be a comedian, like, you know, I grew up, you know, Queens, Long Island, and then, like, in the late 70s, I just went, like, you know what, man, I'm gonna go to New York City, and I'm gonna do something, be an actor, be a comedian, yeah, be a hipster poet, yeah. hipster, I don't know, something, so I came but wait, in, you grew up in, in Queens? I was born in Queens, I mostly grew up in Long Island, man, Italian family? Italian, Irish, yeah, yeah, crazy family, man, yeah, yeah, See, my wait. mother was, uh, you know, like, all the things that we know about, like, my mother was, like, uh, a blackout drunk. Yeah. You know, running, like, pharmaceuticals with the with the Seagrams long before it became hip. Right. You know, like, now yeah. it's almost hip yeah. to be in, you know, like, uh, you know, oh, he just got out of rehab. You know, right. He's got some demons. Yeah. You know, my old, my old lady had those demons on, like, you know, like, you know, middle class Long Island, you know, yeah, man. Yeah. Which, but, I mean, I'm not trying to make it funny. It yeah. actually ended very bad. It, it ended did? very poorly. Yeah. That it really took her down and it and it busted up my family, but even then, you know, I'll tell you the truth, man. Uh, even though there was like a real like like a, a real darkness around the family, there was also a lot of like dark laughter. Sure, and I got a feeling that's that's where I kind of got like, you know, the beginning of like my vision. Like yeah. it was like my family isn't like all the other families. You on can't sell that, yeah, right, man? Right. You know, right? What like, was your dad doing? Uh he was a very interesting guy. He'd had some uh he'd had some issues himself in the uh <laughs> I would say in the uh I, I don't really know the specifics <laughs> but yeah. I, I, I'm sure that illegal illegality yeah <laughs> there was some like pending charges or something there you know like where it was like when I was like seven, not quite eight, yeah. I just remember like a cardboard box being thrown into my room. You know, I'm laying there with like a little, you know, one of them jackets with like the Yankee yeah. pennants yeah. on it. Yeah. And all. It was like, put your stuff in the box. We're moving. It was like, 
<laughs> and the next thing I know, man, we were like in Florida. And like, my parents were managing a motel. But it was like, it was weird, man. Oh, by the way, I remember I was just telling somebody, it's funny that I was talking to somebody the other night. And it's the first time I remember this in a lot of years. Yeah. Like, my family decided that since everything was blowing up in New York City, yeah. the solution to the problem somehow was going to Florida. Yeah. So we all went down to Florida, and it all, like, it just it didn't happen. And the next thing I know, I was being flown back to live with my aunt or something. And then I remember, like, a couple of years went by, and they went... Let's try that again. And like this, this like the same thing. Oh, but I'll tell you something really interesting. And it's actually this week. Yeah. The day that I flew back, this is the only thing I truly remember. I will never forget this. The day we flew out of Miami back to New York City, it was February. It had to be February 9th, 1964, because there I was getting at the airport and there was bedlam and there was insanity. I landed at, it wasn't called JFK then. What was it? Was it Idlewild then? I don't know. I landed at the airport the same day the Beatles landed, man. And they were doing the Sullivan show that night. Right. So I was sitting in my Uncle Rocky's that night watching the Beatles. But I was in the airport that day. I mean, it's pretty pretty amazing, historic little, you know. I always kind of like brushed and rubbed elbows with history never quite got to it you know like i never really quite got to be the you're in the corner of the picture yeah i'm that kid yeah (laughs) there's that kid again (laughs) that little fat kid you know i got i think lennon said he 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 had a vibe on me yeah (laughs) that little fat kid uh i think he's gonna grow up and abuse drugs like myself Uh, all right so your mom was uh, out of control and your dad was uh, dubious and yeah, he was a great guy, and I mean, he held the family together. I'm just saying, like, uh, he, uh, you know, this wasn't, um, you know, father knows best. Yeah, <laughs> so, no, I get yeah, it. Yeah, but I mean, a lot, you know, actually. You got brothers and sisters? Yeah, they're gone. No. Yeah. Dead? Yeah, dead. Yeah, I'm the I'm the survivor. <laughs> you know, I tell you the truth, though, man, I don't, uh, I used to, like, kind of hold that as, like, a, like, I'm the survivor. It's true. Everybody died in my family. Like, and actually, even, like, obviously, my brother and sister died. I don't really want to dwell on the tragedy aspect. I will if you want me to, but for the... Was it all the was it all, uh, Yeah, the same it was pretty shit? dark stuff. No, actually, I mean... Well, I'll tell you in a nutshell, man. Like, uh, my mother stayed in Florida. Yeah. And so, like, when I was 12, it was, like, Christmas. My sister was going to go visit her. And she got killed by a drunk driver at the airport Mm -hmm. going down to visit her. Mm -hmm. You know what, man? Like, that was, like, sort of, for all intents and purposes, like, the end of, like, childhood. Yeah. You know, it's like, at that point, I started seeing the world in a much, even, like, like, at 13 or 14, like, I started being drawn into, like, you know, I just saw the world in a darker way. I, 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 I lost all my... Right. The if idea. I in fact had any childhood idolism or uh, innocence, or, yeah, 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 innocence, yeah. yeah, and it's like, um, you know, I've often thought about that, like, because it's like, it wasn't until like, like years ago, like I kind of like locked that down, all that stuff, yeah, yeah, in my childhood, I, I, I kind of like just like closed the door on it and yeah. went like, okay, you know what, that closet will never be open. Actually, 
I'm not. I'm going to close the closet, yeah. but I'm going to let what's in there dictate my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, I will tell you a funny story. My father had a little coffee shop for a while. Like it was an alleged business, and there was like you know there was actually like uh, a Long Island Railroad like sort of like a uh, couple hours in the morning where yeah. they sold a lot of coffee and stuff, yeah. some breakfast. Donuts. But they were like the rest of the day was like you know like uh, very suspect guys hanging out with my father using the payphone. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right, right, like, right. So, um, and there was a topless bar across the street. And so the strippers used to come in and hang out. So I got to know, like, you know, I was like, you know, trying to grab a few bucks out of the till. Uh, this is like f- from my teens, yeah. like through high school. Yeah. So I didn't really like have a job work. I would just like, I'd show up and maybe like help out for like an hour in the morning. Yeah. Then I'd go to school. And then like, if I wasn't too stoned, I'd come back and like mop the floor. But there was no like, you know, <laughs> salaries. This was just like my father said to me, kid. There's the till. You need some, you grab it. You know what I mean? That was like, it was, he was famous. He had a very laid back philosophy. Not on the books. My old man would like, he'd hang his pants like over the chair and then he'd go sit. He'd stare at this like black and white TV. And he'd just be watching TV and he'd just be chain smoking. And he would drink coffee all, I don't know how it didn't affect him. Like you. Uh, he could possibly sleep. I mean, there's guys on crystal meth that aren't as hemp. And then he would just go like, hey, kid, don't, you know what? We don't have that kind of thing. You got to come to me. Just if you need something, that's it. There's no bank accounts. There's no it's nothing. It's there. It's in, no, it's in the pants. In other words, just go in the pants. If it ain't there, there's no looking, you know? So that's, a, that's the extent of the savings. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah, that, that was it. There was no CDs, no, uh, you know, the certificates of deposit or nothing. Anyway, I get get it in my head that I'm going to be, you know what, you got to understand something. Like, I'm I'm not that much older than you, but a little bit. I'm 50. Oh. All right, I got you by about seven years. Yeah. So, you remember like when Freddie, do you remember Freddie Prince hitting it on The Tonight Show? Kind of. That's the thing, man. That was like a big deal for like a lot of people, I think, my age was that, Suddenly, this 19-year-old kid went out on The Tonight Show and instantly became an overnight yeah. sensation. Yeah. And so, like, I had it in my head. I'm going to go to the improv. I'm going to be a comedian. And I'm going to be He was still famous. in New York then. Freddie? Yeah. I didn't know him. I mean, I was just a teenager. But he started here. Yeah, I think he grew yeah. up here. He started at the improv. Right. How old? Oh, God. I was like a teenager, like 16, 17, 17. Yeah. And you made the decision. You were like... Yeah, because I was always a funny kid, man. Yeah. It was like something I always wanted to do. But uh, I think up until then, my uh, my notion, my my definition of a comedian was more like, uh, and which still isn't a bad definition. It was like Don Rickles, Rodney. Yeah. No, they're great. Yeah, and I've uh, or the up. guys from the Tonight Show yeah, and the too. Ed Sullivan Show, yeah, like because we have we're we're like minded in that. It's like in my heart, you know. And I was just talking to some other guy about this. Those were the guys that 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 put it in me. You know, like, I mean, those in, in, in whatever I wanted to do or whatever, you know, pursuit of truth I had or whoever my heroes right. were later in life, they, they were usually heroes because, like, oh, they're on the edge, man. They're pushing the envelope. But, you know, you go back to those guys, even Rodney, who was underappreciated, they're oh. the fucking best. Yeah, and actually, if you look back now, you realize that, like, yeah, they weren't wearing the hipster clothing. Right. And they weren't, like, you know, there was nothing. But, like, if you really look at it, man, it was the pure were, soul. Yeah, they of, were out of control, of The pure man. soul of a comedian. They were having a great time. They oh, yeah. Completely- I had a friend of mine who told me that uh, Rodney apparently at one point 
somebody of mine was out there. He was writing films and stuff. He told me that Charlie Sheen had an apartment and Rodney had the apartment upstairs. Yeah. And that they'd be having parties and then like Rodney would come down and I'd be like, he had to be like 80 in his 80s. Oh, yeah. So he was like. Well, that's what he hit when he was like 70. You know, because of the movies. Right. Didn't you tell me? I think it was you. For some reason, I remember like the things that you were like at the comedy store. Yeah. And all of a sudden, like you were just kind of new. Getting, yeah. You were hanging out. And all of a sudden, a cab pulled up. Yeah. And Rodney stuck his head out and yeah. went, where's Sam? Yeah. He was like yeah. in his 70s. Oh, yeah. He used to get out. You know, he'd have his own drink. He'd be in a bathrobe. There's a great story that, uh, who was it? Oh, Carl LeBeau told me. You'll love it. That, you know, because, you know, Sam confided in Rob, Rodney and Rodney, they were they they were kindred spirits. So there was a lot of, you know, after after Sam, after Rodney put him on the special and put him in back to school, you know, that, you know, Sam really looked at him as a as a mentor and, and as a guy who, who gave him his break. Sure. But apparently, like one time, you know, Sam been up three days. He was fucked up. He was at the house and, you know, he's, you know, he's at the end of a three day run. And Rodney walked into the house and said, Ooh, look at little Nero. <laughs> That's pretty good. Look at little Nero. <laughs> oh, I just remember Rodney used to come into the improv and he'd pull up in like a, a limo or yeah. like, you know, he'd have like a driver. Yeah. And then he would, this is like in the early 90s. Yeah. He would come in, and he was wearing, like, and it hadn't be, it was like, you know, guys would wear those little, like, waist Fanny bags. packs? Yeah. 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 And then he'd go, well, where's the men's room, kid? And he'd go in there. He'd go up on stage, and I'd be like, I think he's wired, man. <laughs> like, the guy was, like, 65 or 70. And he got up there, and what I remember was, like, you know, like, I, like, even though I had, like, some, you know, I made some moves in my life. I, You know, I've been around some bit. Yeah. But like I've always been a little bit in awe of celebrity. Yeah, I always have sure, been. Sure, yeah. So I'm gonna be like, uh, you know, the, the manager would go like, oh, "Listen, just bring ask Rodney what you want him, what he wants you to say, and then just bring him right up." So I'd be like, uh, "Rodney, uh, just tell him I'm a friend of the I'm a friend of the club. Wants to go up and." Say. So I was like, "Oh, this is gonna be great. I'm gonna, I'm, I am I'm seeing. I'm gonna watch Rodney, and he would go up. And the handful of times that I saw him at the Improv. It was like a completely different Rodney. Like remember Rodney with that yeah. great character, that that yeah. wonderful twitchy and a twitchy yeah. and sort of like self-effacing. Yeah. And then those brilliant one-liners. Yeah. And he would go up and he would grab the mic and he started like working the crowd. He'd be like, "Yeah, look at this guy over here, this bald fuck." And I was like, he was like suddenly working like Rickles, like an yeah. insult comic. And I guess it was just like I don't know if he was high. He had a couple. Of, but, like, I guess he just needed to get his thing yeah, out. Yeah. Like, in other words, like, hey, I don't want to always be so perfect. You yeah. Know, I have to get these great. But I just remember watching it. He'd go up, yeah, look at this one over here. Yeah. Where'd you meet this putain? Yeah. And then, and then like, he'd go, all right, thanks a lot. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, the people were just, like, ah, they couldn't believe that for the price they were paying. They saw Rodney. Yeah. So they were thrilled. But I remember, like, what, what the- was the point? <laughs> like, in other words, like, you're working on that? <laughs> like, right. But, but you know, now as, a, as an older guy, you, you know that, you know, he just needed to get up there. Well. The hell, who the hell knows? Yeah. yeah. Maybe there was 12 people in the room. What's he going to do? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I hear you. Oh, actually, I mean, listen, I've never, I've never, like, I've done some, you know, I've had moments where I was like, you know, I could work some mainstream comedy, and I, but I've never gotten past the point. My favorite thing on planet Earth is to work in front of like 12 people yeah, yeah. that are scattered around, yeah. and half of them don't really want to be there. <laughs> and then like, 
if you could somehow lure them in, yeah, you know, man, it's a victory. Yeah, it's better than like killing with a full room. Well, I, t- you know what, man, you used I- to open your set with like, you know, I got a feeling we're not gonna. <laughs> yeah, you know what's funny? I heard you say that. Uh, that's how we actually got in touch because a buddy of mine, yeah, called me up. He goes, "Hey, listen, man, it was bizarre. I was up at like six in the morning, and I was at my buddy's, and I, was- I guess he had a link to Jim Norton, and so then Norton was on your podcast. Yeah. So he went and listened, and he goes, I." He's playing me your podcast, and I got like a cell phone from like you know, right? To, and I'm listening. So like I go, I call him up. He goes, they were talking about you on Mar- So I guess you and Dom were talking about me at the South by Southwest. Oh, Comedy okay, Club. yeah. So I listened. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool, man. These guys remember. So then the next day, uh, I moved. I moved from a building. I moved into another better building across the street. So I was moving, and I like knew how to throw a bunch of stuff out. So. I keep stuff in boxes. Yeah. So, like, I was going through a box. It's like, I got this is all like comedy material and stuff with phone numbers I'm never going to use. And I found this little scrap of paper and it said, Mark Marin, and a 917 number. Yeah. And I went, and my friend was sitting there right with me. And I went, What are the chances this guy would still have this number? I haven't seen him. She went, Well, take a shot. <laughs> and I immediately hit it. You just answered, like, as if we'd been talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, Mark? So, yeah, but I, I do remember you said that on the podcast. You went, yeah, he would go up and and start by going, I don't, I don't think we're going to get a lot. I guess I did that sometimes. But I think, you know what? I actually thought that you might have had me confused with, like, Larry David. No, no. Because he would actually. Much. You would get up, though. No, no, I remember it. You would do maybe one joke, <laughs> and, and it would be like, all right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I did have a very low threshold for, like, in other words, like. Like, I guess if you're a really professional comedian of any or seasoned on any level, you would assume that a guy who'd been doing it like for off and on 10, 15 years yeah. would know that, especially given like the lateness of the spot right. and the randomness of the audience, that maybe the first line isn't going to kill, you know? Yeah. And like, I would go up, but you know what? I was so, like, I was kind of crazy in those days because it was like, I I guess I could perform, so I wasn't at my worst, like in terms well, of think, like using stuff. But I right. I clearly wasn't like completely sane. But I think that I I I think what we share is that there, for some reason, when you get up there uh, in that moment, a lot hinges on it. You you, yeah. you you don't feel like you're entertaining. You're you're sort of like you know this is everything that I've been right. is happening right now, and it's all hinging on your approval for some fucked up reason. <laughs> I know. Well, and actually, I think we might actually be even more similar in this regard. Uh, for some reason, like over the years, maybe it's like my Italianness or something. And I yeah. used to slick back my hair and go smoke. For some reason, a lot of people were the, under the impression that I was like some cool guy who'd seen a lot, <laughs> like who'd seen a lot of life. Yeah, right. Like, oh, yeah, this yeah, guy, yeah. he's he's yeah. been to the other side, right? And and in some ways, that's true. Right. But I don't think that I ever took the stage as a comedian, ever, that I didn't approach as my hand first held the microphone and looked at it at the audience, that I wasn't like some scared yeah, little prom girl who just want I so need your love. Oh, please. Immediately. Yeah. yeah. I was Judy Garland, yeah. man. I was Wait, the, the weird thing is, is that that's what we're feeling, yeah. but there's nothing but rage in our eyes. <laughs> right. No. And the weird thing is, like, at least you have, like, the cool 
kind of like you know you've always had like a cooler look because yeah. you got the glasses right yeah, and, you know it's all but bullshit. like me man like from the 80s to the 90s like i put on 100 pounds yeah so i went from like looking like sort of like a de niro in mean streets yeah. to like uh, tony salerno you know so it, like it even seemed crazier that this big italian fucking yeah. aggressive guy it would be so like, sensitive people didn't really know <laughs> like the last thing they were thinking was like he really needs us to support him we need you know and it's like and that's all man you know see the, the thing about me is that like comedy and like my life and it's why it's always so hard, like, when I, when I stopped doing it, it's always so hard for me to go back. Because, like, comedy was never just, like, some art form yeah, yeah, no, or business thing. Like, hey, you're pretty good at this. You might be able to make a few. Yeah. It was always, like, the thing that defined me, like, yeah. where I was working out my thing. Yeah, me too. Like, you know, it's like it was life or death in some yeah. weird way. So it's like a war that, like, yeah. you remember that movie, <laughs> Black Hawk Down? Yeah. I always remember this, man. You, you saw it? Yeah. You remember at the end when they finally get through the thing and the guys are shooting? The guy was shot in the neck and they finally get back to the compound and they're back and they're bleeding. And one guy's got, and one guy goes over and he starts grabbing ammo, putting stuff. And I think it's Josh Hartnett, if yeah. I remember, yeah. the actor. And he goes, What are you doing? He goes, We're going back. We There's still a couple of vans there. We got, he goes, we're going back. I'm not going back. What are you, crazy? And the guy just looks at him and goes, yeah, well, you could go back or not, but you'll live with it the rest of your life. And then I'm not even sure if he goes back. And I hope he didn't, actually. Yeah. But, but for me, man, like, comedy's always been some sort of, like, on some level, uh, yeah. like a war with myself. Yeah. I was never a war with the audience. Yeah. I was never a war with the club yeah. guys. That was just an excuse, you know? Right. But And that's what they're watching, though. I'm the same way, and that must be yeah. why I'm so compelled towards you, is that, you know, they're not they're watching a guy like, uh, I don't know who's going to win here, with, yeah. with, with you. Like, who's, yeah. who's going to win right. that war that's going on on stage with that one guy? Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> this is so interesting that you asked me this because I was thinking about this. Yeah. Um, it's like, the thing is that the best comedy that I ever did. See, like, I got known. Like, you remember some of my bits. Yeah. And I remember, like, Dom was reminding you of a bit. Right. And, like, there's bits that people remember of mine. Like, I could write. But my best stuff was... When I was working and I just, and this developed over years. It didn't just happen. Right. It just, and in fact, it developed to the point where when I stopped performing in like mainstream clubs, yeah, like I'd be doing like the later days of Rocky Sullivan's with Credico, yeah, where it would just be me, him, and like John Marshall, and there were like a dozen people who listened to BAI, yeah, yeah, but yeah. they would show up every week, right? And then like a handful I of stragglers, that. yeah, but this was like the end days, yeah, like, like. All the guys would, you know, like real names that were happening were gone. Yeah. And so Randy, uh, I had gone to like my last rehab in like 2005. Yeah. And when I came out, Randy was still going. So I was like, I had nothing going. So I started going to Rocky Sullivan's on a Tuesday night. And Randy would be like, hey, like Whitney Brown or right. Barry Crimmins might show up once in a blue moon. Right. But mostly it was me and Randy. And he'd go, well, just go up and do your thing, man. Go ahead. So, like, I hadn't performed for a couple of years, and I was, again, trying to reclaim my sobriety. So, of course, there was that first night where I'm doing, like, a set list, like, yeah. uh, transvestite, uh, Italian guys. Yeah. Like, as if I needed to remember that. Yeah. And then suddenly I'd start talking about, like, where I'd been the last couple of years. And then suddenly I'd see, like, oh, everybody got their attention. 
Because it's and, real. And, and then week after week, and finally got to the point, man, where I was doing like 45 minutes to an hour. And I'm telling you, Mark, maybe five minutes was stuff I thought about. Yeah. The rest was all off the top of my head. The best. But this had been developing over years where I knew, and it's like, it's kind of like a, uh, it's like a, a trick. It's like a magic trick that you really can't like sell to any casino. Like, right. here's the thing. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Yeah. But if you let me do this, it might but, happen. But <laughs> there's a chance it doesn't. And it's like, well, what do I do? That's it. Like, here's the pitch. I'm very inconsistent. <laughs> it's really hit or miss. I can't but, guarantee you nothing. But if I hit, it's going to be great for me. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, where are you going with that? Who are you selling that to? What agent is going? Dan, sit down. Yeah. I've been thinking hard on this. <laughs> this whole, I don't have an act. I don't know. Where, I'm going to back you out. Yeah, yeah, really. But you know what it is, too, man? But yeah. the reason I say this is... But that, that is a victory in the war that you're talking about. That The, the war with yourself. When you, Yes. Oh, absolutely, Mark. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, but you know what? I know this might sound like the height of hubris for me to be saying this, but... You have the earned that. <laughs> I be, yes, I have. <laughs> I've become... By not caring, yeah, I've become a way better comedian than from the days when I was really like trying to like, uh, what time's Marathon? Yeah, ten fifty. Oh, Who's got the next spot? Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I can understand a tell, but I should be on before Manfrotti. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Sure. Like uh, what? Yeah. Stu Kamen yeah. says the midnight. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, you know, but like I was trying to. To find my way in the mainstream of things. And it's like, yeah, it, it would have been great if it worked out. I'd have a great, like, after a pension now. But I don't think we were trying to find our way in that. I think we were trying to find ourselves. I, I think that some weird thing about me, because, like, I'm in the same way. I didn't have, like, you know, a plan. I just wanted to be a fucking comedian on yeah, my own right, terms. Right. And, and I really didn't even take into mind the fact that, like, I wasn't even that concerned with entertaining you know, right. you know what I mean? It's just sort of like if this hits, if we, if I hit it, it's gonna be great for everybody, right? Right, right. right so right. let's yeah. just see if that happens. Now I do remember this. Yeah. Like when I met you, I'd say that's around ninety-ish, early nineties. At the same time, Hicks had been around, but that's the first time that I became yeah. friends with him because right. he was in New York. He was, and he was I remember angry. you and I and him. Went Tried to, to get the, to New, the Times Square one on night. New Year's. Yeah, that was, was the New closest Year's. I ever came to it. Yeah, we we, we got didn't about get two into blocks. the crowd. Yeah, I'm glad we didn't. And we <laughs> ran back to the fucking improv. Yeah, right? Didn't we go see Silence of the Lambs or something? I don't know if we did. Maybe you guys did. Uh, I don't remember going to the movies with him. But I remember like uh, me and Hicks hit it off, and uh, we had like a real mutual respect society, you know? Yeah. And uh, but I gotta tell you, like, if I ever saw a guy who was less concerned. See, I got to tell you something. I actually think there is some, like, seed in me of that kid who used to watch the Ed Sullivan yeah. show who wanted to, like, sort of entertain. Yeah, no, like, yeah. Like, be Jack Carter or Jan well, you Murray. To be a comedian. But, like, I'd watch Hicks sometimes, and it'd be like, and it's funny looking back, and that is, like, 20. He could not get over on New York audiences. Like, there was Woody. I always felt that he was always angry, but they yeah. just, in, in a 15 minute chunk, for a New York audience, I really think they were, immediately they're like, what is he yelling? I mean, they, it was just it was amazing to watch. There were two guys, and I guess since I have, it doesn't really matter, uh, but, I, but I always felt that, like, he, he pushed the you're not digging me card way too soon. Yeah. As I'm sure I did. 
But I think I did it just out of like, you know, self-collapsing fear. Yeah. Just like, okay, this, I, you know, sweating and <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. insecure and just like, oh my. But like, I, I got a feeling like Bill, you know, this isn't a criticism because yeah. he was my buddy and he deserves all the, you know, acclaim he's gotten and, you know, since his death as well. But I always used to watch and go like, you know, I think he's pushing this like, you're not digging me card a little too soon. Yeah. And I'm sure that I did that as well. Where, yeah. But I think I was doing mine out of more fear, like well, yeah, he, fear yeah, base. He wanted know? the distance, I think. I think he, he liked, uh, you know, having this singular tone and, and having his own kind of time zone with things. Like he sort of thrived on that. That like his, you know, his whole tone, the misanthropy of what he was doing was to establish his point of view. And I, I don't, I don't really believe I think he was an amazing joke writer, and I think he knew that. And I and I really think he liked having that space to sort yeah. of like think out loud without worrying about that, right? You know, I tell you, you know, one of my proudest moments when yeah. he came up to me at the bar one night at the Improv, and I guess it's kind of hard to believe that there was a time when like people were still listening to stuff on cassette tapes. Yeah, and I guess his uh, his new comedy album had come out. Yeah, and he came over to me and he handed it to me and he goes, "Hey, man, I just want to give you that." You really taught me a lot about comedy, and I was like, "Like, wow!" It was like truly one of the most genuine, like, yeah. great compliments. Like, hey, yeah. yeah, that's right, my man. This like guy who really people really dig. You know, it really made you know. There's like one of those things that you, you remember that go like, "Wow, man, that was special." You know? Yeah, yeah. He used that to like watching you. Special. I remember him sitting in the back of the room, and he was the first guy that I ever. I think I told Brian Regan that like Brian Regan came in and Hicks came into the room and he's like, I love watching this guy. And I had to sit there and like in, in like, cause he appreciated comedy. You yeah, know, Hicks yeah, yeah. did. He, but he was one of those guys where, you know, you'd see him and you'd, you'd be like, he was trying to work things out, man. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's great though. You just Brian Regan, who I love Brian Regan yeah. as a guy. He was a great guy. Yeah. But he's terrific, tremendous comedian. Great. And they never really seemed to be working a lot of stuff out. There was a no, guy was just who a- was just had like great material. Yeah. And he did this kind of like he would get into this character, this kind of, and then he'd, he'd accented at times this really like insanely nerdy character. Yeah. And uh, the weirdos. And I mean, I haven't seen him in years. And I could, I mean, once in a while, I'll see him on like Letterman yeah. and all. But I mean, there was a guy, see, this thing, he was almost like a true direct lineage of those guys that yeah, we were talking comics, about, like yeah. the Ed Sullivan guys, yeah. the Tonight Show guys, yeah. Mike Douglas. Yeah. Because there was no, like, you never saw Brian and thought, oh, boy, Brian's had a rough day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wonder, yeah I, Brian. wonder, I wonder if he's going to get over <laughs> yeah. on the crowd tonight. Yeah. Hey, let me tell you something. No matter how he does tonight, he's on his way to detox. Yeah. <laughs> let me tell no, you. Yeah. Nope. There was never any of that, no. man. Guy would come in and everybody would be happy. Yeah. He was like Hickey and Nice Man Cometh. You yeah, know? yeah. He'd come in and all the denizens of the bar would be like, oh. Hey, Brian's here. You know, they'd go in and it was like 20 minutes of joy. Yeah. Exactly. Watching like a really funny comedian. Yeah, yeah. And you go and you'd laugh. Your, and then he would go into the night. Yeah. There was no like, hey, can you get me something? Yeah, or no. None of that. No. Like uh, yeah. I had to cut him off. <laughs> like, yeah, it was yeah. so refreshing. Yeah. Well, I think we romanticized that shit. I mean, you oh, know, we can... way too much, man. But let's go. But just out of curiosity, though. Um. So, like, what was the beginning? When did you first come in and start doing comedy? How old were you? Well, I moved to the city. I guess I was like, uh, I want to say I was 19. I might have been, like, just turned 20. I went Mm -hmm. to college for, like, a year. I was, like, a year, 
late getting out of high school. Yeah. Because I'd cut classes for yeah. like the better part of three years. So it took me like a year to like find. Then they had like what they called a free school. Yeah. It was like from the Billy Jack thing where it was like these <laughs> hippie teachers in the yeah, early yeah. 70s who you'd sit around on like foam talking about your feelings. Yeah. And I saw that and I went, oh, there's my ticket out. Yeah. Because like, so I went and then I went to like a community college, Nassau Community College. Uh, I was going to be like an actor and all that. But I was always like funny and yeah. I kind of knew that that's the thing I wanted to do. So I guess I was like about, maybe I just turned 20 and I just was like, you know, <laughs> my father's coffee shop was now, <laughs> there weren't really that many, it was just those guys hanging out. And like, yeah, those strippers from the uh, yeah. the coach car in across yeah. the road there. So I remember one day I just made up my mind, like uh, I met a guy, he was like some old doctor and he knew somebody in the village who'd rent me a room for like, I mean, it's like. Late, this is in the 70s, so it was yeah. like 30, 35 bucks a week. Wow. For like a furnished room. Yeah. So I was like, hey, you know what? I'm doing this. Yeah. So one day, I, I always remember this. Uh, there was these strippers. I forget their name was Chrissy or something. And you know, like, when you're like 19 or 20 and you're still like, you know, maybe like you got some baby fat and a couple of people and some stripper, some jaded stripper, it's like, you, you know, like, oh, my God. So I was, like, trying to impress her. I told her, like, you know, I'm moving to the city. I'm, I'm going to go after my, you know, be an actor. And she got so nervous, she butted out her cigarette and started screaming to my father, Nick, you better talk to this kid. He's out of his mind. He thinks he's getting on that train and he's going to go into the city and be an actor. And I was like, why is this scaring you? So, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I realized, like, she probably had, like, some dreams that she could never... So I tell you, man, I had like some beat up. It's almost like, a, you know, like a Lou Reed song, standing on a corner, suitcase. Yeah. I mean, I had the city. I had the room. I was working in some like bad jobs. And, you know, man, I just I went out and I just like did open mics and I sucked. Where like, like the in the village at the. Where were well, they this is like 70s. So like the places that even if I you know, could remember their names, they've long uh, oh, I mean, I would go to the improv. You could audition once a month. Yeah. Or you can go to the comic strip and audition once a month. Or catch, you could go once a week. Yeah. And I would go. And, like, in the early days, like, like I wasn't even, like, modeling myself after, like, say, Rodney. Yeah. Do you remember? I'm sure you probably don't even remember this comedian, Jackie Vernon. Yeah, I love Jackie with Vernon. A, he had that real deadpan. Yeah, he would do those one. With but, the, the slideshow. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Loved I him. Brilliant. I loved him. But... The thing is, that was a subtle kind of thing that, yeah. like, a guy spends years developing that. Yeah. And I was like a 20-year-old kid who thought I was going to be, like, the next Jackie Vernon. I was writing all these one-liners. It's so weird, because he was the first guy that really resonated with me. It's weird that you had Did you really? Yeah, I went and saw him with my parents when he came to Albuquerque, New Mexico, when I was, like, 11 or 12 years really? old. Because I was such a huge fan. And he was doing these lounges. You know, he did the Hilton Inn, the lounge at the Hilton Inn. And I was like, I begged my parents to take me, and they took me. And I sat right up front and watched Jackie Vernon, and it changed my life, you know? Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So then, yeah. I know him, yeah. So, but I was up there, man. I was trying to do these, like, one-liners, yeah. and it was just, it really was anything. But uh, I started meeting some guys, like, do you remember a guy? I don't know if you'd know him. His name was Terry Day. Like, I was, like, 20. And I was yeah. sitting on line outside of Catch. Every Monday, you'd sit on line or... And Terry Day was like about 40, 40 mm -hmm. something. And he'd come in from San Francisco and he was like kind of older and hipper. And he'd like watch me and he'd go, like, You know, you got something. It's not there yet. But like, I think you. And, uh, you know, I just, I just really couldn't put it together, man. And then um, 
I'd work like uh, there was a buddy of mine, this guy Tom Saunders. I think mm-hmm. he wound up writing like for Arrested Development, but we were like a comedy team. Yeah, and we were doing like sketches and yeah. all. And uh, so we were at the comic strip, and then uh, I got into some plays. I was doing some acting, and so yeah. then that was going to be the thing. Like yeah. I was going to be like Marlon Brando, right? And then uh, finally, I started hanging out in the village. Like just there was a, they're not there anymore. Well, the, the bitter end is still there, but next to the bitter end was a place called the Dugout. Yeah, and it was just this like funky, beat up joint, and there was this woman named Rosie, and she was like a real big heavy broad and she would like she was like a real village character and she would run this monday night show and all these lunatics would go up and my buddy neil was the bartender there and he goes hey i'll talk to rosie i'll put you up and it was the first place it's like it was sawdust on the floor and like you know some drunken nyu kids but i go up and it was like the first place like say around 81 82 that i started feeling like i started developing a voice where like yeah, like I'd have to go up with some jokes, but then what became funnier was the the space between the jokes, yeah. the being on stage. Yeah. And uh, around that time, a guy comes in one night, and uh, he goes, Danny, I want you to meet my friend Rockets. Do you remember Rockets, Rockets Red Glare? Yeah. yeah. So Rockets was watching me, and he wanted to be a comedian. Yeah. So he's like, hey, man, maybe you could do some of these things with me in the East Village. So that... Like, I had this, like, sort of, like, little run in the East Village. Actually, you know who was uh, hanging out? Uh, uh, remember Steve Buscemi? Yeah. Steve Buscemi? Sure. Was, like, a buddy with Rockets. Yeah. Oh, and then the big thing that really probably helped me, like, go from, like, being, like, this non-entity to being any sort of entity was that uh, Dave Heenan was quite a character. I remember him. You remember Heenan? Yeah. So he came up to me. I knew Dave from the village. Yeah. And he goes, Danny, I'm going to federal prison. I need you to watch my gig. So he gave me, I took over the Tuesday night at the bitter end. And it was just like, it was like the beginning of like my life, you know, because like, it was like, they'd let me drink. I could drink. And because I was the MC and there was no real, like, you know, I could go up there and it's like, do as much time as I wanted to. And so sometimes they would like, uh, like the person booking the joint would ask me like, can you put Dennis Blair on? Okay. I mean, like, yeah, okay, put Dennis yeah. Blair on. But most of the time, it would be like, you know, it was just like guys trying to get on, and it'd be like, yeah, come on down, man, but I'll put you. And I actually had, like, a little following, and so all of a sudden I'd be, like, on, you know, it's like it was a great stage, too, man, because I had, like, room to yeah. move, and I was still kind of skinny. Yeah. I was, like, skinny in those days. Yeah. I was, like, kind of handsome. So, like, you know, and it was like it was, like, that first beautiful moment, that sweet spot where, like, Booze is working for you. It's not working against you. The Coke was coming around, but yeah. like you couldn't really afford to get too crazy anyway. Yeah. And like you just had this freedom because you didn't care. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. And uh, I did that for like about, I'd say, a year, like every Tuesday. And I probably did like a couple of hours every Tuesday. And then I'd go do these other little, and guys would come up to me and go, like, uh, you know, man, you're really good. You should be, like, at the improv. Like, you're better than a lot of guys that catch in the improv. I was like, yeah, man, I should be at the improv. Yeah. So I walk by the improv, and I look in through the window, and I see Dom, who I knew yeah. you know, from knocking around. Dom Herrera, yeah. So I walk in, I see Herrera, and I, he's talking to some, like, really skinny guy with, like, who's, like, pale, like, almost, like, white skin 
who looks like he's going to die. So like, hey, Dom, hey, man, I saw you in the window. How you doing? He's like, yeah, Danny. He goes, oh, here, you know David? It was freaking David Bowie. He was talking to Bowie. And it was like, this is like around 82. Yeah. So I was like, oh, this is like the place. This, <laughs> you know, I've got Steve Forbert hanging out at the Bitter Red. This is like <laughs> Bowie's hanging out with Bowie. You know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I auditioned and... I was I'd really become a good comedian, like you know, yeah, whatever. Oh no, yeah, yeah. In my twenties, you know, and Silver would not pass me. The weird thing is that Silver all the Friedman, guys, Silver Friedman, who ran the club, she just she wouldn't pass me, and I would go in. And what's weird was that all the guys who like were already at the Improv knew me because they would come down to the other clubs that I was doing, like sweeps in the bitter end, try and get like spots that paid on the weekends. So they'd be like. When they'd bring me up on the audition night, they didn't bring me up. They'd be like, oh, this guy uh, is one of my favorite comedians. And I'd go up, and I mean, like, I'm telling you, Mark, I would kill. I would, like, hammer. I would bang the room, and the woman would not pass me. And then, like, one night after just, like, I mean, like, annihilating the room. Like, what? Uh, She just, like, sort of in a way that you're like, well... Everyone else seems to think you're pretty funny. So she passed me. And to her credit, it's like, I don't want to paint like that bad a picture of her. Because she did like jump me right in. Like usually if you passed in those days. Yeah, like, you got to uh, start late night. In the 80s. Yeah, it was like late night and you hang yeah. around. And like I kind of, she let me jump to the head of the line in a hurry. Yeah. Like I almost immediately started like emceeing weekend shows yeah. and getting like good, like, you know, those 11 Ten fifty spots. Yeah, so I got going real quick, and it was just a matter of months. And then one night, uh, this woman Sherry Fortis came in. She was looking at people for Lorne Michaels. It was called the New Show. Right, it was the show he was the first show he was doing after he left SNL in nineteen eighty. Right. So this is like around eighty three. Yeah. So she came in. She caught me on a great night, and uh, called me into audition for Lorne. And uh, talk about, uh, you know, like when you say uh, this isn't working. I remember going in, there, like everybody was there. It was like right around here. It was like 54th Street. There was like some big studio. So when I got to the audition, man, it was like, you know, in the afternoon. And, you know, I'm like a night creature. You know? Yeah. So I was like, I'm, I'm there to audition for Lorne Michaels. And so there was everybody that you ever but like not just like comedians it was like uncle floyd was there yeah. it was like guys you saw like on cable late night cable TV. uncle floyd i think is uh jimmy vivino's brother is that right i mean uncle oh, the, that sounds like it could be right the guitar player for conan and i think he still yeah. performs yeah. in yeah. Uh, new jersey like he still has the show right is that yeah floyd vivino jimmy vivino? Yeah. yeah that sounds right i think it's i think it is i just learned that like two weeks ago or, uh, over there yeah so. i guess i always it was like one of those things you kind of knew yeah i did like you know justin timberlake and ryan gosling were uh roommates Mouse, when yeah. they were in the disney uh, yeah yeah where they yeah. were musketeers, musketeers yeah. Like, yeah that's crazy right? yeah so they're all there and i remember thinking like hey i'm getting a little nervous you know this is like a big deal because like Lauren michaels yeah so I go downstairs, and there was a bar there, and I figured I'll just have, like, that one yeah. shot. To, so I, And I did. I just had, like, a stiff shot of Jack Daniels, and then I went back up. And uh, I remember, like, Alan Havey, who wound up getting the show, he was there, and he had a bit about, like, soap on a rope. Yeah. And he had the soap around his neck, and yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm not doing any props for this. I'm just going to go in. It's like, so, again, this is, like, the first time that being, like, the guy who thinks he's going to work the moment. Yeah. So I go into this room, and it wasn't just Lauren Michaels. It was literally like 
all these people that you kind of like revered from like not only SNL but like SCTV, like Dave Thomas, yeah, and uh, I think Candy might have been there, and uh, pretty sure Penny Marshall was there. And, uh, there's just all these people, uh, Buck Henry. Yeah. There's like all these guys that like you'd grown up in the like, audience, like, just like sitting, yeah, at this like sort of big desk yeah. with Lorne. Yeah. So I got up, and uh, somebody said, "Oh, this is Dan Vitale." Blah blah blah. And I said, hey, it's great, yeah, guys. You know, I was coming down. And I started to try and get that rhythm yeah. going. And yeah. then I was, because my material never was just like, oh, here's the material. You right. had to work in organically. Yeah. You know, hey, man, you know, I woke up today and it's like, yeah, so I'm going to audition for And I started doing the thing. And they were not reacting at all. They were just staring blankly. And it only took like a minute or two. And I just went, hey, you know what? I got a better idea. Why don't all you fucking people go fuck yourselves, man? I grabbed my jacket. I went, yeah, shove it. Are you going to sit there, fucking stare at me? Go fuck you, man. And I walked out, and I was like punching the elevator. And Sherry Fortis came out, and she went, Dan, she had seen me at the improv, killer. He was like, oh, he's my new find. And she went, what What? What happened? I I went, I I don't know. She goes, Dan, um, Lorne had told everybody to not react because they would burn themselves out laughing, trying to laugh right. at everybody, and it would come off disingenuous. So right. That's why they weren't. But they were listening to you. And I went, I'm so – I went home, and I was just like my first big audition. I So then, like, I don't know. It might have been like Pat, Pat Buckles, yeah. was like managing, and uh, I don't know, whatever it was. I got some. I got somebody to call Sherry and explain that Dan was, yeah. So they actually let me come back and audition again. And for some reason, the second time, like I just kind of like, I did a spin on what I had done, right? And what a jerk I'd been. And now I was like really kissing up to them, yeah. And it was another one of those like sort of improv moments, but this time it worked. Right. And I just saw Lauren like Lauren kind of like nodding like, "Okay, now I get you." Yeah. And uh he actually uh I mean, I wound up doing the new show and I did a pilot for my own sitcom with Joe Montagna called yeah. Big Shots in America. And then I got hired for his first season back. But he was actually sort of like my mentor for like I'd say like two, two and a half years where like I would be up at his office like almost every week. He'd have me up to his apartment, he was taking me out, he got me a some development money from NBC to not go work anywhere. So yeah. it was like the first like real time of my life. What did you, know? you learn from him though when he sat and talked to him? I mean, what was the impression? You know, one thing that jumps out at me that it's funny coming from this conversation that I always remember was like because you know, like the other night me and you were talking on the phone real quick, and I just went like, Mark. I'd love to do the podcast, but the sooner the better because yeah. I fold under pressure. Right. Like if I have another day to think of it, I may think of a reason that I can't do. So Lauren would say to me like sometimes when like I would like he'd go, you know, he'd see me. He'd come to the improv all the time and he'd bring in people and he'd come in like a lot. And he said, you know, man, he goes, really great comedians got to stand up there and take the bullets. And I don't think you're ready. To, you know what I mean? Like you don't you're not there yet. You don't just take the bullets. You, like, fold under the bullet. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. You know, like in a great cop movie, the guy's, like, yeah, <laughs> shooting yeah. it out. Yeah. Like, I'm the guy who, as soon as he got shot Stumbling at. Fumbling like, the gun. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, Barney <laughs> Fife or something, you know, like, with the, you know, yeah. So, uh, like, looking back, that was really, uh, 
it's something that I always remembered because like I got, you know, like even like at Rocky Sullivan's, I get up there and I go like, I know I'm going to do like close to an hour and I know I'm going to wind up having fun, but these first 10 minutes are going to be dreadfully painful. Yeah. I just got to get through. I have to like, you know what I mean? And that's something I couldn't do when I was younger. But um, what did I learn from him? You know, looking back, he was a great guy, and he really... I've, I've thought about him a lot over the years. It's like, you know, there was the first guy who really made me feel special. Like, yeah. like you know what I mean? Like, really said, like, you know, you got, like, you got something special. And he really tried to give me opportunities. Uh, in, in terms of mentoring, no, he didn't, you know, he didn't have anything to offer... Right. You know, like you would think that he might have been a guy who'd seen all these guys come. You got to understand, this was the 80s. I'm sure that, like, some of the people that he had to deal with hadn't come later to, yeah. like, you know, the Chris Farley sure. and guys like that. So, um, I don't know. He's just, he made me, you know, just, it, it was, it was like that feeling of special, like feeling like you have a unique talent. You deserve to be doing this. Uh, it's kind of like, I tell you, man, I've made peace with it. I made peace with it a long time ago. But I can't help but think sometimes. I mean, Mark, I'm not saying this like out of like, you know, I was like, <laughs> I didn't get, I got into the candy store. I didn't get up the ladder to that like nice jar with all yeah. the real, but man, I got into the store. I have a friend of mine who uses that metaphor. He goes, nah, you really got like more like to the window. You were like we're close, but you're looking in. But like I kind of felt like I got into the store and I just didn't have it to like get up that ladder to the thing. But I got into the – I think I, I feel like that I got into a door that a lot of guys never get in that door. So I should be very grateful. You know? Right. And I've often thought this. And I don't know. Maybe but what, being... what exactly happened? So you're on. You got. You you did the pilot. You did. Uh, you did the show. And then you you're 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 signed up to be a featured player on SNL. Okay. When what did happened the was wheels come off. <laughs> you know, sad. The wheels came off almost immediately. No one saw. Like I guess. Like I guess the wheels came off. I must have had the donut on because. I managed to, when you're really looking back at yeah. where I was at, the fact that I got a couple of year run, um, Lauren was doing that show, the new show. Yeah. And so, like, I guess, like, me and Havy were, like, the guys who yeah. nobody ever knew of. And then uh, he had all these guys like Candy and Dave Thomas, Buck Henry. So they would work us into sketches. And then, like, but for some reason, Lauren, like, you would bring me into those. And I just remember one day, like, we were making, like, uh, After Scale. And this guy came over and said, uh, hey, Dan, I'm Jim, blah, blah, blah. I'm one of the associate producers. Lauren wants to offer you a contract. It's going to be uh, 1500 a week. And you're it's like, you know, I was making $15, you know. Yeah. So I had had like a little Coke problem at that point. Yeah. And, you know, the first thing that happens when you're not making money and you have a little Coke problem and then you're making a whole bunch of money at once, you suddenly have a Big Coke problem, man. <laughs> and I was like, but it's funny. Like, I've always been, like, thought, like, like guys like me and you say, for example, we're kind of hip. Like, we get the types. Yeah. We see the people. We go, like, yeah. man, I would never be like this. Did you see this showbiz asshole yeah, over yeah, here? Yeah, yeah. Look at this little prima donna walking yeah. in yeah. from his limo. The minute I was making the bread, I was starting to get, like, a little TV time, yeah. I became, like, the biggest, like, you know, like, walk in, like, hey, how are the boys doing tonight? <laughs> yeah, going to do your little 20 minutes? Yeah. Am I on? You know, I'd be like, 
wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like, like, like looking back, like, what, you know, like, what did spots pay in the, if you really think about it, like, so say it's like the 1980s, I think he made like $10 a night at the improv, yeah. which everybody takes the 10. Yeah. Like Seinfeld would take the 10. Yeah. He might tip a waitress or something, right. but nobody ever turned down the car. She'd come in and be working on the show, come in. And be like, oh, can I get on? Yeah, all right. Yeah, it's like, yeah, put Dan on. He's yeah. doing some TV. Yeah. And I'd go in the bathroom and I'd be like, wah, wah. Yeah. I realized I would probably spend like $100 just or $200 just for like a $10 set. Yeah. And then like call the comedy seller, you know, talk to, uh, you know, Manny. Rick Crow. Oh, yeah. hey, Rick, and he's, oh, yeah, I'm in a cab. So I'd jump in a cab and I'd be like, hey, look the other way. Wow. I realized, like, I'd make $25 a night doing comedy and spend, like, you know, hundreds of dollars running around. <laughs> kind of was fun, but um, so the uh, the new show, I remember uh, it just it was the lowest rated show that year yeah. on television. In yeah. fact, Miami Vice took its time slot. So then Lauren called me in the office and said, listen, I'm going to get you some money from NBC. It's like development money. You know, at the time, it was pretty good. It really wasn't that much money. Yeah. Like, like 20, 25 grand, something yeah. like that. So he wound up, uh, he was going to produce a pilot. And it was uh, it was called Big Shots in America. And James Burroughs directed it. Bernie Brillstein. I mean, like, all the heavyweights were there. This thing looked like it was, like, yeah. going to be a monster. Mountaigne yeah. was in it. Christine Baranski, whatever. Good people. And the thing just, it just didn't work. So... But I made a lot of money, you know, relative yeah, sure, at the time, sure. doing that. But you know what? By the time we did the pilot, man, I'd already started like like I'd already started falling apart. Like yeah. it, it had swung the other way. Yeah, where like the booze had like taken over. It wasn't just like okay, he's a little crazy. This is fun. It's like. Nah, this guy's really like <laughs> uncomfortable to be around, <laughs> yeah. and like he did sign a contract, and we have to pay him, so yeah. we we might as well use him. I remember like shooting that pilot man up at eight H. We shot the pilot at eight H, and I remember like, uh I just was like, you know, not doing that. Gr- I mean, it was like shooting a pilot in front of a live audience. To begin with, was like a different. I'd been in plays and I'd acted, but like this was, a, and like Lorne, whatever he nurtured and mentored as like a co- comedic, he wasn't like a people guy. Yeah, like people would say, like you know, I've never seen him lose his mind yeah. at people, or, except with you, and he would just like be screaming, like you know, from behind a camera, there'd yeah. be a red light on a camera, and yeah. he'd be like. Just do the fucking lines, goddamn, you know. And then like I remember Joe Montaigne, who I still. To this day, I, he'd come over and go like, "Hey man, screw that. Just look in my eyes. We do this, you know." Yeah. And uh, I do remember, like, I mean, it was hell. It was really hell. And that guy Jim Burroughs, who's like arguably one of the most successful producer directors yeah. in yeah. sitcom history. Yeah. yeah. That guy, I'm pretty sure he loathed me from the moment, you know, like he got well, stuck with doing? me. You were just improving, or you were just not. No, you know? it was a sitcom. I play. I was like the Fonzie character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like the Fonzie guy. Yeah, yeah. you know, it was so like. What was uh, the fundamental problem? That you know, what were you not getting? Oh, because I was like, I was drunk. Uh, I, let's put it this way: I was drunk at night, and then coming into rehearsal scared. Yeah, and then. As soon as I started getting yelling, yelled at, I'd go out and get drunk 
er. So at a certain point, all I knew was there was a red light there, and I see. Oh, and this is the weird thing, man. I guess because Lorne had never uh, produced a sitcom. Yeah. He had guys with. Uh, I remember him arguing with Jim Burr, or I heard that they were arguing because he had guys with cue cards there. And, like, I heard someone go, like, no, nah, nobody does cue cards in a sitcom, yeah. man. That's like live TV stuff yeah. and all. But somehow or another, they. I'm sure this is one of the few sitcoms that was ever shot where a guy was actually holding cue cards. Yeah, yeah. Like you would if you were doing. You know, yeah. You know what the weird thing is? I actually have a copy of it somewhere. Yeah. And uh, I remember, like, years ago, my friend Chris Murphy. Yeah, I remember Murphy. I remember is he all right? Yeah, he's good. Okay. He had some problems. He's, he pulled through, man. Good. Yeah, he's a good guy. So I just remember going to his apartment. I said, hey, man, I haven't looked at this. Since, this is like eight years later or something. So we put it in the, uh, I guess it was like a VHS in those yeah. days. And I went, well, you're about to watch a man in complete blackout drunk perform a sitcom <laughs> shot before a live audience at 8H Studio." And we watched the thing, and the credits rolled, Joe Montaigne, Dan Vitale. And we watched the thing, and it wasn't great. But I tell you, the weird thing is you almost wouldn't know that I was drunk. Like, yeah. I would just think, I mean, I know, Jim Burroughs, I'm sure if you, you know, if you, if you were interviewing him next and he walked in the door, he'd probably turn around. If he remembered me, yeah. probably wouldn't remember. But here's the weird thing, man. You would have thought that that would have brought everything down to a screeching halt. A couple of months, that, Lorne announced he was going back to take SNL over in 1985. And I went up to the offices and he made me audition with like everybody. But it's like the cast that year was like Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. and uh, Randy Quaid. It was great. And I showed up like, here's the weird thing. I think I showed up drunk at one of the auditions. And yet. He called me to the office, and I remember sitting in the office. So this is like the fall of 1985. So. Yeah. And he went, all right, tell Downey's agent 3000 a week. See if you could do, you know. You know Robert was like 20 years old. Yeah. You know, so he's like, all right. And then he looked at me, and he went, Dan, um, in the words of the Kennedy brothers talking about LBJ, I'm hiring you. I'd rather have you inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. And what did that like, mean to you? I guess it meant like I've spent a couple of years trying to develop stuff with you. Now I've got this, this thing, thing yeah. I'm doing. And if I don't hire you, it would be just my luck for you to be a to hit on some other venue and right. attack me. Right. And uh, so like he still believed in me enough that way. Yeah. But, you know, it was really weird, man. It was like almost like because, and I wasn't probably doing so much to dissuade everybody, but like I showed up, man, and, you know, like Lovitz had his desk and, uh, you know, uh, he was like, oh, he was a great guy, Robert Smigel. Yeah, yeah. He was like the only guy who would talk to me. Yeah. Like he, he, had a, he had a little office with this guy, John Schwartzfelder. Yeah, yeah. He was like one of the, wound up being one of the original Simpsons guys. Yeah, yeah. And Smigel was just like a new guy there. Yeah. And like, you know, like my desk was like it was like almost like I was loitering, you know, like I was yeah, yeah, be yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And then like I'd go get drunk. Yeah. Like no one was really <laughs> including me in. Yeah. So then I go in, I talk to Smigel and He's a sweet guy, Smigel. And then you know who else was up there who I became pretty good friends with at the time? Remember you know Bruce McCullough? Uh, from the kids in the hall? Yeah, and yeah. Mark McKinney. Yeah, yeah. For some reason just those two guys from the kids in the hall were hired as yeah. writers, but they were like 
complete raw rookies. I'd just go like, uh, we'll go hang out with the kids, man. Yeah, yeah. And then like all the film guys, like uh, James Signorelli had the film unit. Where yeah. they shoot, and I knew that the film guys had like a refrigerator with beer. So like if I'd run through my money, and yeah. <laughs> I'd go like hang out with the film. Hey, guys, we shoot. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Yeah, you mind? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, and I remember like Madonna was hosting the first show. And I guess she had married uh, Sean Penn just not long before that. So these guys really dug me, uh, McCullough and McKinney. They were just getting started. And they wrote a sketch for me with Madonna as this, like, Avon guy who, like, has a date with her. Yeah. And uh, they came to me and they went, you know, man, Lauren just went. Like, in other words, and, you know, justifiably so. He didn't trust me. Like I wasn't somebody he was pushing. I had, yeah. you know, what I mean, I hadn't earned any trust. It was yeah. like this guy we don't know. So I got like some things written for me, and they never really got past dress rehearsal, man. Right. And then I just, within like a matter of weeks, it was like, you know, wherever my alcoholism was at, you know, it just all it just all caved in, man. Yeah. And I went to my very first <laughs> nineteen fall of eighty five, late eighty five. I wound up at Regent Hospital. On East 61st Street. And actually, I was getting fired. I remember I went into the office because I'd actually written a film at the time. I had co-written a film with this buddy of mine. Lorne was actually interested in producing, possibly. So he got us some money from some producers. Yeah. But he was, like, so convinced at that point that I was, like, becoming more and more trouble and untrustworthy that he got me money just to walk away from it. So, like... I wound up like getting paid just to let the other guy go do the rewrite and whatever would go. Remember Gary Weiss, the guy who shot yeah. the films? Yeah. So I remember Weiss would come up to me because I guess he'd had some issues. He was like, dude, you're like gone, man. <laughs> you know, it was great Robert Downey Jr. And I haven't seen him in years, but he was like, he was almost like, he was really like, uh, like a great young guy. And he'd yeah. be like, man, you're messed up. Let's go. Cause like, we'd go to like a cast party the first week with that, like the Odeon. Yeah. And I remember like, I was getting in a fight with like, you know, telling Pee Wee Herman to go fuck himself. Yeah. Go fuck you. You got, and like, they were trying to throw me out of the party. Yeah. And I remember Downey jumping in the cab with me going, Hey, I'm sticking with you, man. <laughs> you know, and then we would go to some like after hours club. He was a great guy. I didn't, who would have ever guessed what was going yeah. to become? He was just, yeah, it's this like, is kid. You're nuts, man. You know, <laughs> you know I remember like uh, when Pee Wee Herman hosted, yeah. it was like the second show. I just remember how they didn't throw me out of the building. I don't know, but I just remember like, uh, I guess Phil Hartman was like actually like sort of like his right hand guy. Yeah. Like they had worked together right. or something. So right. he, Hartman wasn't a cast guy. And I just remember being being so drunk. Like I was on my back in the writer's room and like looking up and uh, seeing Paul Rubens. And this guy, Phil Hartman, sitting there, and I just remember babbling something. At that point, like, I I kind of got to the point where I would just be, like, getting drunk, and guys would just be, like, walking over me. Yeah. Like, like, oh, no, he does that. He gets drunk. He lays. <laughs> that, don't worry about it, you know. And, you know, like, and then, like, I'd see Al Franken, who was, like, the producer. Yeah. and You know, like, so I was getting the warnings, like, you know, man, you're really, like, out of control here. And then finally, like, uh, there was one show... Where, like, uh, I think I, like, stayed in my dressing room and I didn't show up for a sketch. Yeah. And it was like, okay. So I was getting fired. You got to understand, this is 1985, so it's a different reference than now. I had somehow heard the word rehab, 
I didn't even really completely understand what it was. So Lauren was like, listen, this is, you'll get paid for the first 13. And I just looked across the desk and I went, not knowing what a rehab really was, I went, what if I went into rehab? And he went, oh, well, that's another story. And then, like, I guess Gary Weiss had been in rehab. He came in. So I had after great, like, after insurance. So the next thing you know, I was in, like, some, like, high end. And I remember thinking, like, and that's where the line comes from, buddy. The hitting bottom? Because it was 1985. I had a cashmere coat. I had, like, thousands of dollars. I was getting checks sent to the rehab, being kept in the safe. And I really thought I was hitting bottom. And in a weird way, at that time I was. But, like, you know, I was still in my 20s. I still yeah. had my physicality. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was under contract to, like, arguably the biggest comedy show in the country. Yeah. Uh, I, You know what I mean? But I thought, like, oh, boy, this is it. The, uh, you've become the gutter. This is it. Yeah. And you know what? I don't know, man. Maybe it was easier to embrace the idea of being a failure in that moment yeah. and like going, hey, I'm a drug addict, I'm an alcohol, than it was to actually like face the fear yeah. of what it took. I mean, because I was privy to like, uh, you know, top psychiatrists and, uh, you know, they brought AA meetings in and CA meetings. And it's like, I was. Give it, I, I intellectually got it. Yeah. I intellectually understood this is what I need to do now right. to not be blowing up this part of my life. Intellectually, but the intellectuality didn't do me any good. Right. Because no, I, I hadn't yeah. gotten it. I completely know? understand that. I was yeah. talking about that with somebody uh, the other day. Like, you can understand something, but you can't engage it. Yeah. You know, like, I get that. But yeah. The other you thing. You hadn't processed it. You hadn't really, yeah. Well, you're still not dealing with the sickness, right. you know. <laughs> right. right. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I like, get it, but can I get a line? Oh, I understand. I, I can't tell you how many guys I say. Well, I wouldn't even say sad to say because I'm the fact that I'm sitting here with you in this lovely room with these, you know, doing this interview, and that I'm 57 and I still smoke cigarettes. Yeah. And, the fact that I'm alive, that so I can't say sad to say or oh, it's right. a messed up story. I'm thrilled that I made it through all that because I'll tell you something, man. Any of these like scripts I'm working on, if they get finished, we don't know. That's all a crapshoot, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know. <laughs> or will I start performing again? Somebody be like, hey, quite a character. Let's throw him in that sitcom. Yeah. Or throw him in that film. It could happen. But you know, like guys who always you always hear about guy like, oh yeah, he's a. He's playing the part of a guy who's – so he's spending some time downtown. It's like, you know, man, all that time that I wasn't, like, performing yeah. and, like, making it in show business, the characters I've met, the darkness I've seen, I don't need any more prep work. It's like, oh, yeah, you want me to be that guy? Yeah, I got you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I always hear about some actor. Like, oh, Ryan Gosling yeah, yeah. Uh, was hanging out in a – uh, tiki bar in Florida because he wanted to see what people. It was like, oh, really? He needed to study that, huh? I got five guys' numbers. I call you right now. They're that, yeah. <laughs> They're that you know guy. what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And I had a few people over the years who always say to me, like, uh, you know, man, you romanticize your darkness too much, and uh, and it's like, you know, they may have had a point. They may or may not have had a point. But I will tell you, I wouldn't trade in one moment of all the friggin' people that I met, the demi-monde, as the French would say. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, 
it was like almost worth having to go through all that. Yeah. To see that side of life that that like if you'd planned it, you never would have. No, you would have you would have just pretended. Or you yeah, would have lived yeah. someone else's life. Right. You had a life. Yeah, so now the only thing is staying alive to freaking, you know, talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you're alive, man. You're doing good. Yeah. This was great, man. Thanks I for really, talking to me. Thanks for, like, I mean, I got to be honest with you. Other than Charlie Rose, this is like, <laughs> I've always thought myself, like, at my lowest moments, I always watched Charlie Rose and thought, man, if I could just get it together, get have a project. I don't know why. And I, I'm not always even that impressed with everything he says, but it's <laughs> yeah. just something about that table. Yeah. But this was, this was like, yeah, this close. was the thing. Oh, good. No, man. this was the thing. Yeah, thanks for having me on, brother. This it's great fantastic. to see you, man. Glad you're doing well. Thanks, buddy. Love him. Love it. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, thank you, Dan. Thank you, man. 